this morning after I uh, finished repairing, pre- preparing rather late. Um, Chrissy told me I needed to get dressed. That's what she keeps me on track. And uh, after getting dressed, I looked in the, the mirror and Believe it or not, I do do that every once in a while just to make sure that some of my hairs are going in the right direction. And uh, I, the thought crossed my mind that somebody might actually confuse me for clergy, you know, with the collar and all that. <laughs> and I thought, there, you know, there, could, there are worse things, you know. Somebody might actually find out what I do for a living. <laughs> and, which reminded me of... Uh, a movie last night, uh, we had Matt's four girls over, and they wanted to watch the B movie, which is not a second-rate movie. It's about bees. It's an animated thing, and, and uh, I think I'd seen it before, and I went down at the end, and, uh, uh, you know, it's a, in that movie, uh, the main bee, whose voice is Jerry Seinfeld, uh, he wins a class action lawsuit on behalf of all the bees who are, you know, in involuntary servitude for the rest of mankind, and then the rest of the movie's, you know, dealing with the consequences of that. But at the end, there's a great line, uh, when all is saved and uh, the, the, the bee has his law practice there, uh, and he's counseling a cow who feels like a piece of meat and being taken advantage of, and then he gets called out to another mission uh, and he says, I'm going to turn you over to my associate. And in comes a mosquito. And the cow says to the mosquito, are you a lawyer? And he said, sure. I was already a blood-sucking parasite. All I needed was a briefcase. <laughs> so, well, speaking of lawyers and law and uh, such things, um, I-, I decided to... Uh, to start a short series on justice. And I can see people scurrying for places to hide their eyes to take a Sunday morning nap. But hopefully, you know, we can actually see here before too long after some introductory uh, things here about what it is, uh, that it's an important concept. Um, And what I want to do today is just kind of a an overview, some facets of justice that we need to be looking at, and also to compare it with mercy. Um, uh, I'm reminded, uh, especially here with, with Mike and Kathy, one of the vivid memories I have is a song that we sang it uh, uh, long ago uh, uh, from Micah chapter 6. Uh, and including some of the words of the passage, you know, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And he had answered, he had showed the O man what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, what is justice. Well, the classic and the the simplest definition is simply giving every man his due. Okay, pretty simple. Uh, And that was actually brought out at the cross. 
in Luke 23, there's an account of one of the criminals uh, who was hanged, railed against Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other criminal answered, rebuked the first criminal, saying, Do you not fear God, seeing that you are in the same condemnation? For we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing. Speaking of Jesus, and he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That second criminal got it. He understood justice, and he understood that he belonged there, but Christ, by justice, did not. Well, uh, justice comes from the Latin jus, uh, which means a sacred formula or religious instruction. This is the part where you need the toothpicks. Uh, the, uh, in English, we, use, we combine juice with ditch to say, which gives us uh, a concept of words rightly or fitly spoken or binding. And the word just means a right fit. Okay, so ladies, when you find the perfect outfit for you, it fits just right. Uh, applied in the area of law, uh, a law that is fitting for a situation and therefore just. A sentence or punishment that fits the crime is just. You get the idea. While the, the first and primary connotation and application uh, is to the legal or the judicial area, the concept of justice, almost of necessity, goes much deeper into our culture, within our being, into the arena of philosophy, and more specifically, morality. The ancients, the, the Greeks and the Romans, had four primary virtues. They were courage, uh, they were practical wisdom, what used to be called prudence, they were temperance, or what we, we would call self-control, and justice. Plato uh, gives an important place to the idea of justice, uh, and he used the Greek word for justice, which comes very new, very close to uh, the word morality or righteousness. And he, he concluded it properly includes the whole duty of man. It also covers the whole field of the individual's conduct insofar as it affects others. Plato concluded that justice is the quality of the soul in virtue of which men set aside the irrational desire to taste every pleasure and to get a selfish satisfaction out of every object and accommodated themselves to the discharge of a single function for the general benefit. Okay? All right, well, just a little bit more here. Uh, Plato's mentor, Socrates, whom Plato is quoting in, in his works, said this, A just man is wiser because he acknowledges the principle of limit, that is, limitations in his life. Unlimited self-assertion is not a source of strength for any group organized for common purpose. Unlimited desire and claims lead to conflicts. The life of a just man is better and happier. There's always some specific virtue in everything which enables it to work well. If it is deprived of that virtue, it works badly. The soul has specific functions to perform. 
When it performs its specific functions, it has specific excellence or virtue. If it is deprived of its peculiar virtue, it cannot possibly do its work well. It is agreed that the virtue of the soul is justice. The soul which is more virtuous or, in other words, more just is also happier, a happier soul. Therefore, a just soul or, in other words, a just man lives well and an unjust man cannot. Okay. There are a couple of different kinds of justice and there are other divisions that we're not going to get into today, but the things that we can appreciate today are internal justice as, expo- as, as compared to external justice. The, the first being uh, the conformity of our will and the latter being conformity of our actions to the law. Uh, the union of those two forming perfect justice. Exterior justice is the object of the law or jurisprudence and internal justice is the object of morality, okay? So the justice that we have internally is part of our conscience. Externally, it's part of the system that preserves order. Some commentators have said that in the Bible, righteousness and justice are pretty much the same thing. Um, In Isaiah 26, it says, The way of the just is uprightness. You, most upright, or you, O Lord, you do weigh the path of the just. Both those words mean moral or religious perfection. Uh, God is spoken of as not only perfect righteousness and justice, but also as the source of all righteousness and justice. So justice in the world means the rule of God's righteousness among men in two ways, by the operation of divine grace in the heart of men, interior, and by the means of ministry through justice, of, of justice through civil government, exterior. We've already covered this. Through the best civil government, God's righteousness is to be expressed in, hopefully, godly law. And the, the order of this law establishes is justice. So a lot of different applications of the word you can see. But why should you care? As Christians... Why should we have to understand this exterior justice and seek it? Well, St. Augustine, in his study on society called the City of God, spoke of the civil turmoil of the, the, the downfall of the Roman Empire. And he said this, Peace vied with war in cruelty and surpassed it. For while war overthrew armed host, peace slew the defenseless. War gave liberty to him who was attacked to strike if he could. Peace, on the other hand, granted to the survivors not life, but an unresisting death. Justice being taken away then, what are kingdoms but great robberies? Or criminal organizations, each with a leader and a, or a head and a body of laws or rules, self-policing. If you remove justice from a nation, it has little to distinguish it from a band of robbers or a criminal syndicate. So without justice, the law becomes a form of theft, an instrument of extortion and oppression in the hands of whatever group of men control it. If the wealthy are in control, 
the law becomes their tool to subjugate the poor, make them poorer. This is called maintenance of the social order by those who are in charge at that time. But if the masses take over, the poor men seize control of the government, the law is used to rob the rich and all hardworking men to support those who don't work. This is dubbed social justice uh, and social welfare. In both cases, it's robbery. Um, Because God's righteousness is despised in our culture often, the nations of the world tend to become more like robber states and lands without justice. That's one reason you need to be concerned about justice. Another is that often perception for many is reality, and uh, justice is not just how things end up. It's also how things are done. An important concept that we've always said, the, the end doesn't justify the means. On the other hand, oftentimes the means will justify the end. Founding father John Jay was very troubled by the condition of the colonies and their relationship with, with the Great Britain. And so he wrote an address to the people of Great Britain, which was an appeal to his fellow English subjects to recognize the injustice of heavy taxation, severe trade restrictions, uh, and all the other onerous burdens that Britain placed upon the colonies. Uh, And uh, through Parliament, in which the colonies had no representatives. And Thomas Jefferson praised John Jay's work. But then the British troops marched on Lexington in April of 1775. Many, including Jefferson, wanted to seek independence and therefore war with England immediately. Jay did vote to muster a a continental uh, army for defense, but he also introduced a measure in the Continental Congress to make one more appeal to the King of England. Jefferson voted against Jay's resolution, but it passed nonetheless. And then finally, in 1776, when it was determined to go and, 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 and sign the Declaration of Independence and initiate uh, officially the conflict, Jefferson commented that Jay's final appeal had kept them a year behind in their efforts for independence. Okay? So you see the conflict of the two. Jefferson wanted to get to it. Jay said, no, we need to appeal again. We need to make this clear. What many people don't know about the War for Independence was that it was not a clear choice of all the colonists. In fact, when the armed conflict actually ensued, some 25,000 colonists who were people living here actually joined forces with the British against the the colonial revolutionaries. Um, There were many in England who believed that the king and parliament were being unjust to the colonists. In other words, it was a close question and very controversial on both sides of the Atlantic. If the founders had proceeded as Jefferson urged, there could have been a whole lot more resistance in the colonies and the war may have been lost. Uh, The founders hung as traitors 
and we might now be a part of the European Union. Think of that. Uh, the world would m look much different today, to say the least. You see, Jay wanted to make it clear to all in Britain and the colonies that the colonial leaders were pursuing justice, not revolt. The end result was the same. They had to sign the Declaration of Independence and go to war with England. But for Jay, the means was just as important as the end. Employing just means was critical for achieving a just end. So we can see that justice often requires tremendous patience because just means are essential to a just outcome. And our efforts will be far more effective and lasting if we pursue justice in the process as well as a just end. The founders proceeded with the war for independence with the presupposition that justice was above the law. That's a thorny question for Christians to deal with, but that's where they came from. So, what can or should Christians do today in the pursuit of justice? Well, believers understand what many public officials don't that those public officials are ministers of God in, under Romans 13. And they're there to accomplish His good purposes, order, justice, prosperity, and peace. Given the sinful nature of man and the tendency of sinful human beings to act uh, sinfully, uh, the external restraints and encouragement of civil government are necessary. Otherwise, society would be either tyrannical or anarchic. Somebody in tight control or everybody doing as they wish and to everybody else. The strong would prey on the weak by every possible means. God ordained civil government in part to keep in check man's penchant for taking advantage of others by violent and unjust means. God's purpose for human society is that His good should flourish, and governments are established by God to aid in accomplishing that end. Therefore, part of what believers in Christ owe to the powers that be is to do everything in their power to promote justice in society, beginning with obeying and supporting laws, at least in, as, insofar as civil law does not contradict or hinder the kingdom purposes of God. We're not going to talk about civil disobedience today. Again, that's another topic. Uh, I want you to just be aware that we're not speaking of anarchy. You can do what's right in your own eyes. But that's, we're just talking about the basics right now. The duty of the Christian to pursue justice in society goes beyond mere compliance with existing just laws. We've got a responsibility to work for justice and uprightness in every area of our society. And there's at least a couple of duties involved here. Uh, in the first place, we must each be careful to maintain a course of goodness and justice in our own lives. Uh, we need, need to be able to say, as Paul could, that I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
uh, no one should be able to point at us as Christians and, and uh, as an example of fudging or skirting or scorning the laws of the land. This applies just about to every area of our lives, whether we drive cars, whether we take care of our homes, whether we show concern for the needy, pay our taxes, and, and everything else. Uh, secondly, the demands of goodness and justice require that we engage in promoting and supporting the laws, such laws that maybe not on the books yet, that will further this cause within our community and opposing all changes in the law that do not conform to the requirements of justice. For whatever means are available, including the political ones, we must be active campaigners for laws that further the cause of goodness and justice and outspoken opponents for those that threaten these fundamental social needs. So fulfilling these two obligations actually creates burdens for us in a couple of distinct but equally important ways. One is that we've got to work. In order to work for justice, Christians have to stay abreast of the issues being debated in our culture. Um, today, those, there's no shortage of moral concerns which public officials will be seeking to resolve by legal means. Uh, obviously, the economy. Immigration has been a long-standing one. The status of marriage, bioethics, bio stem cells, uh, such issues like that are huge. Uh, now, not all issues are equally critical but all are equally moral. Uh, that is, they have to do with matters of goodness and justice. When school boards or Congress or any decision-making body inscribe rules or codes or laws, they are directing the moral conduct of the people subject to their codes. Now, we'll not be able to participate in that process uh, if we don't stay abreast of the issues and seek to understand them from the perspective of a biblical worldview. And we hope to talk about that uh, at, at a future date. Believers need to be talking among themselves about such matters, to search the Scriptures together, consider the demands of sound reason in determining which laws uh, to support and which to oppose. The churches... Um, as agents of God's kingdom, kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, should take an active role in helping its members to think about such matters of public policy according to a biblical worldview. The church should teach its members to think about specific matters with the mind of Christ. In the pre-revolutionary America, the colonies we referred to earlier, the church building was the center of public life. Not only did it serve as a house of worship and instruction, it was also a place of meeting for town councils, the forum for public hearings and debates, the polling place where matters were decided in free elections, always preceded, of course, by the Election Day sermon. It's important to remember our history. The campaigns for the abolition of slavery, for women's suffrage, uh, were both heavily influenced by Christians expressing their faith. But for much of the 20th century, Christians 
especially white evangelicals, have shied away from activism. Uh, anywhere from the 20s until the 70s, pretty much evangelicals withdrew from the, the public square. Reasons? Well, most of us weren't alive, but think about prohibition and the miserable things, failures that was. And, and, uh, and of course, the fallout from the Scopes trial had a huge effect given the backlash and the way that was used to flip-flop uh, Christians and, and creationists. Soon, uh, that rich activist tradition was lost or divorced from true faith. However, in the African-American community, Christian principles and hopes prodded the rise of the civil rights movement. Uh, and it was not until the 80s when the moral majority uh, uh, organization started that activism began to resurface among white evangelicals. Uh, one author, a Tim Stafford, wrote a book, uh, Shaking the System, said the very idea of Christians advocating for public causes created panic among secularists and dreams of utopia, a long lost Christian America among true believers. Um, so it's not an easy question to deal with, and, and we're not here suggesting that that should be our primary role, but it is a role that we cannot neglect. Today, clearly, churches are fairly apathetic, a far cry from performing a role in their communities uh, to promote justice. The second responsibility that we're encumbered with is to nurture a growing understanding of the biblical teaching concerning matters of justice. And we can only work for biblical justice to the extent we actually understand those standards and know how to argue for them on the basis of sound reason. So where do we look? Well, how about the Word of, word of God? And where do we start? Well, how about the law of God? Now, we don't seek a theocracy here in America. However, we should believe that whatever is holy and righteous and good should be incorporated as far as possible into our public policy and our law. The Ten Commandments are pretty, pretty straightforward. And while certain of those strictures may be superseded or reframed by grace, the essential principles of biblical law have much to offer in leading us to a good and just society. The law of God, for example demands that the poor be treated with compassion and integrity. At the same time, it requires the poor uh, to take their responsibilities uh, for the needs, uh, to take, that they take responsibility for their needs within a community that is determined to work with them. Psalm 82 says, Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. The law of God is concerned as well about the state of immigrants. It insists that they're, they're to be subject to the same laws as the rest of the society. At the same time, it demonstrates compassion and forbearance in helping sojourners to find a niche in the civil order. You know, God's law teaches us, teaches neighbors to live responsibly together, requires fair and equal wages in the marketplace, provides guidelines for proper care of the environment, protects the innocent, uh, and honors local magistrates or authorities. 
It also gives detailed counsel in how to protect and preserve the family, marriage, and the rights of individuals. The righteous person finds his delight in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. So, for the purpose that he can understand the good and the just purposes of God. This is not to insist that understanding and applying the counsel of biblical law in a secular society will be easy. Certainly there are huge issues about how to approach such a strategy when it comes to influencing lawmakers and judges and others involved in the policy-making arena. Uh, we talked a lot about this when we went over the uh, God is the Issue uh, series uh, uh, last year about how we can most effectively communicate a biblical worldview and get God back into the discussion. Uh, so, you know, we may not want to approach the city council with, thus saith the Lord, as some, one family does here in town. Uh, uh, but we still should be able to find language to express the goodness and uprightness of God's law that can be made agreeable to the reason of public-minded citizens who don't understand. Secondly, that there are many biblical examples of good people who can help us understand how to think about justice and what it might look like in society by studying and discussing the stories of Joseph and Daniel and Ruth and the Good Samaritan and Cornelius and others. Uh, we can develop a clearer understanding of the nature and benefits of justice and encourage ourselves and our neighbors in that course of action. Thirdly, there are excellent historical precedents within the Christian tradition to guide us in thinking about justice and goodness. Uh, Luther's insistence that the churches work with civil magistrates to care for the poor of Wittenberg. Wilberforce's tireless efforts to end slavery in the British Empire. And Martin Luther King's patient, persistent efforts on behalf of civil rights. These and many others from the history of the church can guide us in thinking about matters of justice and goodness within our communities. In our day, when moral issues are being debated and decided at all levels of society, churches can no longer be content to just promote discipleship and instruction in discipleship that fails to take into consideration the demands of following Jesus for life in the public square. Public authorities at every level in our society will continue to enact laws that guide and constrain the moral practices of the citizens. Given uh, the rapidly growing relativist agenda of our postmodern age, Christians cannot be content with a piety that fails to proclaim the truth of God into the public square on all matters of life. So we owe Caesar as much of the light of truth as we can bring to bear on such matters so that he may perform his role as a servant of God for justice with all wisdom and expediency. I'd like to uh, move on now to considering mercy. Uh, I didn't intend this, but it so happens that this week we had two commemorations. First, uh, the commemoration of Martin Luther King's birthday. I think that was Monday or Tuesday. And then on uh, 
Thursday, I believe, was the uh, commemoration of the Roe v. Wade decision, which uh, opened the floodgates for abortion around our country. And so there is a tie-in here. Uh, mercy is inextricably tied to justice. They're not opposites like black and white or truth and falsehood, but more like determination and patience or truth and love. Mercy is the balance to justice and justice to mercy, if you will. Paul said a few things about mercy. In 1 Corinthians 6, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, here's the good news, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And then First Timothy 1, he said, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be the teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank God, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord, who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me, Paul, into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul understood the purpose of the law and the importance of justice. But he also understood the balance of mercy because he recognized himself as a recipient. Several months ago, we talked about abortion. 
um, which was the subject for many on, uh, on Thursday in Topeka and Washington, D.C. In taking a stand, we must, we have no choice but to state the clear truth that these little ones are human beings, the most defenseless and vulnerable little boys and girls, and the taking of their lives can therefore be nothing short of the violation of God's sixth commandment against murder. We are right for calling for justice for the knowing perpetrators of this grave offense against those created in God's image. Now, the word culpability is a legal term, and it it basically stands for the degree of one's blameworthiness. And there are levels of culpability. Uh, If I raise up my heel and stomp on your foot... I'm more culpable than when I'm dancing with my wife and, as usual, step on her foot. Make sense? Um, Clearly, we, I think, rightly hold politicians who vote for and doctors who perform abortions much more culpable than the mothers who undergo them. But I think we'd be naive if we didn't recognize that a repentant post-abortive woman cries from deep within because she knows what she did. At the same time, we've got to recognize that there is room at the cross for all, including those women. Women. In 1 John 1, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us, to wash it all away from all unrighteousness. One step further, perhaps a difficult step for you and for me. Could you forgive? Could you have mercy on a repentant abortionist? It seems God can. Last passage I want to look at here is in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in 
Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one of us can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. My uh, schooling uh, at the University of Kansas, many in the world would consider to be pretty worthless. My, my major was special humanities. Aren't a lot of jobs out there for a special humanities degree. Uh, and we, uh, you know, I studied some philosophy and and not very carefully, uh, as you can tell, but, uh, but uh, also uh, some poetry. One of the most enjoyable courses I took was a course on Shakespeare. Okay? And if you ever get the chance, and you want to be a little bit challenged to think, read some Shakespeare. Because of the, the Old English, you've got to read it carefully, but you will get tremendous insights about not only the nature of man, but the nature of God. One of the most famous uh, literary examples uh, that relates to this matter comes from the Merchant of Venice. Venice. When Portia asked Shylock to show mercy, and he responds, on what compulsion must I? Now, who's going who's to make me? She responds with this. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his own crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God Himself. And earthly power doth then show like God's when mercy seasons justice. Please pray with me. Father, we give our praises to You and You above all. And Lord, we've talked about some, some perhaps difficult concepts to apply we can understand them, Lord, in, in abstract, but when we get down to application, it does become difficult sometimes. Lord, I pray that we would both seek the truth and justice, and in doing so, we know that we will have to become informed, we will have to study, we will have to get outside of our comfort zones, we will have to talk about these issues with other Christians. 
we'll have to teach these things. We have to be a part of the order that you've established here within our government. And Lord, we do pray that the ministers of God that are in place right now would carry out a just and benevolent form of government. But Lord, at the same time, we pray that there would be a counterbalance of mercy at the appropriate times in the appropriate places. And that we, we, would, we would always be mindful that but for your mercy upon us, we would have nothing to look forward to but an eternity in darkness. Father, thank you for this privilege. Help us to grasp these concepts and to actually take them out into the world. We give you all the praise and the glory, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen.